Well, last week, we concluded our summer series on the Psalms. Say that fast ten times. And next week, we begin our fall series on the book of James, which will take us pretty much through the end of the year. Today's message will act as kind of an introduction to James and lay the major groundwork and theme for our next study. James is an amazing epistle, a letter written by the brother of Jesus, full of practical and vivid exhortations to godly living. The major theme of James answers the question, what is the mark of a true disciple? Today we will begin to look at that answer. Contained within the 108 verses of James are 59 commands pointing towards the royal law, the law of Christ, referenced in James 2, verse 8. James insists that obedience is a prime mark of true faith, and he directs the reader towards a profound self-examination. In chapter 1, verse 22, James writes the foundational purpose of his letter. He writes, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Paul echoed this truth in Galatians 6, 7 when he wrote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This idea of sowing and reaping points us towards the fruit in our lives. What is that fruit producing? Is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? And this analogy is used liberally through the New Testament to point us towards real and phony believers. This true distinction between doers and hearers is of profound importance and the basis by which the sheep and the goats are separated like we read about in Matthew 25. That separation is the real and the phony. James was written to those who profess a faith in Jesus Christ so that we might examine ourselves regularly to see that we are in God's word, to see that we are part of that authentic faith. And this self-examination is a crucial discipline. For when we stop, we become in danger of losing our way. When we stop using God's word to examine our authenticity, we're in danger of becoming like those who quite recently, after years of professing their faith in Jesus Christ, quite recently turn their backs on their faith publicly, humiliating themselves, but also rejecting the God of the universe. This is the real fruit of their lives. Our preview of James actually comes from Matthew 7, because that makes sense, right? And our passage today is the conclusion of what is called the Sermon on the Mount, which constitutes chapters 5, 6, and 7. Today we will focus on just four verses, the ending of this sermon, verses 24 to 27. Although we will be looking at other parts of this message because they all tie in together to this one true authentic faith. These four verses make up the conclusion of the sermon, and in many ways, James acts as kind of like a commentary on this passage. Our text is quite famous and has inspired any number of songs, skits, illustrations, and inspirational posters. But too often, the truth gets drowned out by this false notion that Jesus loves us and pursues us 
but asks nothing in return. Transforming Christianity into a one-sided relationship where we become the center. We become the object of most importance. Anyone who teaches that Jesus expects nothing of us is a liar and a phony. Now, this might seem kind of jarring, but the alternative is an, an extremely rude awakening with an eternal consequence, as we will see several times in Matthew. The gospel does say, come as you are, but it leaves no room for stay as you were. Let me be clear. The free gift of God is the salvation that belongs exclusively through Jesus Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works lest anyone should boast. But accepting this gift means you've counted the cost. It means you are putting to death daily your old sinful self, and you are being transformed through your obedience into the image of Jesus Christ. It, mean, it means obeying the things he taught, maturing in your faith so that, so that you take joy in this obedience because you love and serve the master. This is the mark of a true disciple. And this is what we are to teach new disciples to do, like it says in Matthew 28, 20. Teach them to what? Obey the things I taught. Admire him all you want. Study his life and memorize his teachings. Attend and even serve in church faithfully. But until your love for Jesus is expressed by and through your obedience to what he's commanded, your faith is phony. Scripture says so. This is a tough message, but there's hope at the end of it, and we'll get there. A mature faith in Christ comes from the obedience built upon the word of God. And we're going to open that word now, and I would invite you to stand with me. We stand here at Timberline when we open God's word together because we believe it comes with his full authority. This is the authority by which we measure our lives and truth. This is the metric. So we stand in reverence of this. We're in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a tough text, but it is also life-giving. It is also inspired by your Holy Spirit. Father, as we dig deep into this, this text and this message, I pray that you would guard our hearts but also crack them wide open. I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and we would allow your Holy Spirit to convict us, to point us to truth, to point us to love, to point us to this deep desire to follow after you. 
Father, I pray that you would use me as poor of a vessel as I am, and you know how I've struggled with this text. I pray that you would speak life to us today through your word. We thank you and we praise you because you are faithful and your word will not return to you empty or void. Thank you, Father, for the work you are doing in us. Amen. You may be seated. As I already mentioned, this passage makes up the ending of what is known as the Sermon of the Mount. In chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus was baptized by his cousin John. Then in chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. And then after that, he starts gathering his disciples and begins teaching in the synagogues, healing the sick and casting out demons. Word of this miracle teacher begins to spread, and people gather. But who was this audience? Who were these people? Well, they were Jews, God's chosen people. From the lowly farmer to the learned Pharisee, the people in this crowd had some understanding, had some notion about who God was because they had the law. They were not blank slates. They had an idea to varying degrees of education what righteousness looked like because they had the law of Moses pointing them towards holiness. These were the people, though, of whom the Lord said in Isaiah 29, 13, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. What wonderful things is he talking about? He's talking about the Messiah, God in human form, who will come and perform wonder upon wonder, piercing marrow from bone, dismantling the wisdom of the ages, because it's not the wisdom of God Almighty. Why? Because their hearts are far from him. And their fear of the Lord has become a commandment taught by men instead of life-giving nourishment from God. These are the people who gathered. This is his audience. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. He sits down, and he begins to teach. And how does he begin? With a list of rules? With a litany of commands? No. He begins by describing the character of those who will be transformed by his grace, because they recognize their need for his mercy. He describes the meek and the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He goes for the heart. This sermon describes how those who belong to God will show evidence in their hearts displayed through the fruit in their lives, which comes from obedience. After making it clear that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus begins to address the heart issue at stake within the commandments of the Old Testament. Why does he do this? He answers this in Matthew 5.20 when he said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a spider here. Sorry, that was very distracting. I I had to do that. 
I totally derailed everything. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the point. Knowing the law wasn't enough. The scribes memorized and copied the law, while the Pharisees took it a step further by actually throwing in some of their own interpretation. These leaders had led Israel into fearing God with commandments taught by men. Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. Knowing the law, being able to recite them on command and throw in your, inter- your own interpretation isn't salvation. So you've heard the word and can recite it. Big deal. That isn't enough. Show me what's in your heart, which is the essence of the law, for there are only two conclusions. You are either building self-righteousness or you're building my righteousness, says Jesus. And one of these ain't going to cut it. He's saying it's time to examine ourselves to see whose kingdom we are building. We see this call to examine ourselves even before the sermon from the minor prophet Haggai, someone who is not preached on enough, so we're going to do it today. You're like, who? The Jews had returned from exile, and they were supposed to rebuild the temple. That was their command. Come back to the promised land, build the temple. But instead, they had turned to their own wants and their own needs and their own plans. So the Lord said to them in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own. This message was to the Jews returning from exile, poking at their lack of real satisfaction because they were neglecting to obey God. But it's also a picture of the final judgment when we will have to give an account for what we did with what we were given. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are God's temple. So what are we doing to present ourselves worthy that the Lord God Almighty would be glorified and would take pleasure in us? Are we building for his glory or our own? Jesus brings us right back to this question at the conclusion of this sermon on the mount. What does this look like? Well, it looks like two men. He ends with this illustration comparing and contrasting two men from his audience. We'll begin with what they had in common. First, they both heard. Verse 24 and 26 both begins with the phrase, everyone who hears. Now, in case you think this somehow exempts Anyone who has and will perish without ever hearing the gospel, remember that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that all are guilty. 
No one has an excuse. Romans 3 says, everyone has sinned, everyone has fallen short. But remember, the audience on this mount. Who's this audience? Well, we already talked about. These are Jews who have some understanding of who God is and what holiness means. And the book of James is to those who profess to be believers. So while it remains true that all of humanity is without excuse, this passage was initially received by and heard by those who heard the words of Jesus himself. Remember, Jesus came to kill self-righteousness so that we can put on his righteousness. So who are the self-righteous? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute here. So both men heard. Then what did they do? Second thing, they both built. Again, we see this in verse 24 and 26. Both men respond to this hearing by building a house, a place to abide. This analogy of building a house is really about the fruit of our hearts or evidence in our lives pointing us towards our eternal citizenship. You are either building on the wide path that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to life. But you are building. Your fruit will point towards your citizenship as either a child of God or a child of wrath. Not one single hearer is passively walking through this life without leaving something behind, pointing towards his or her eternal future. Third thing, they both experienced the same storm. The wording is identical in verse 25 and 27. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house. Now this storm could mean the final judgment like we read about in verse 22. Or it could mean the trials and the struggles that all of us experience while living in this sinful world. Both interpretations are relevant and applicable, so I say we keep them both. The point is, the point is, both houses experience the same beating, the same trial, the same scrutiny. Why? Everyone who hears builds, and everything built will be tested to reveal its structural integrity. So you are either building your temple or God's temple. So that's what these two men have in common. They both hear, they both build, they both experience the same testing. And while they both hear the same message, things go radically different in the construction. Remember, Jesus already said in this sermon, back in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You're either traveling the wide path that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to life. The first man is called wise because he built his house upon a solid foundation, the rock so that when the testing came, his house remained standing. The second man is called a fool because he built his house upon the sand, which shifts and moves easily with just little force of manipulation by the elements, so that when the testing came, his house fell, and great was the fall. So what happened? Why did one man build on the rock and the other sand? Did the foolish man not have a civil engineer come out and check his land before he started building? 
They heard the same message and both responded by building. So why did the second man fail so miserably? Perhaps a more pertinent question would be, was he expecting to fail? Or had he deceived himself into thinking he was okay? Had he deceived himself into thinking that his foundation would hold? Was he in denial? Was he caught off guard? Was the Sandman surprised when his house fell? It's not, the difference between these two men isn't the rock and the sand, guys. It's that the wise man heard and obeyed. And the fool heard and did not. Our passage doesn't say this, but I suspect that these two houses probably looked pretty similar. We can't see into each other's hearts, which is why this is about self-deception. The outward appearance was good, but the foundation was garbage. Jesus addresses these, these foundationally bankrupt builders in verse 21 and 22. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sounds like obedience. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your names and, and do may, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sure, the houses were similar, but one of them was built upon a, a foundation of obeying the word of God. And the other was not. But what does this mean? How, how does this happen? Well, it's pretty simple, and yet it's extremely difficult. Obeying is hard. If you have children, you know this to be extremely true. But Jesus also says so. The gate to life is narrow, and what? The way is hard. The burden is light, but the way is hard. Only two paths exist for hearers, guys. So let's talk about these paths. First path is the broad path. Either your life will show evidence of how you are building the kingdom of God, or it will show evidence of how you're building your kingdom. One of these building projects is hard. The other is easy. The broad path is wide and easy. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. On this side of this wide path, sorry guys. On this side of the, the wide path are the self-righteous hearers who follow the letter of the law but ignore the spirit of it. You could rightly identify this extreme side over here as Pharisees. But did you know that Pharisees still exist in the church today? These are hearers, these hearers are building a really good-looking house. They're prophesying, casting out demons, and doing might, many mighty works in his name. Or at least they think they are. Because Jesus will declare to them in the end, I never knew you, Apart from me, 
They look really good. Jamie, you look really good. They have all the answers. They they serve and they give faithfully. Yet in their hearts, they do not love God and their neighbor and have no concept of grace. They think they are obeying because they are doing, but the greatest commandment is absent, and therefore their work is draining, joyless, and in vain. But they do it because they have deceived themselves into thinking, this is what it takes to be a Christian. This is what it means to atone for my sins. Work done in vain is always self-righteousness. But they think, so long as I'm doing, I'm okay. Now I'm going to pick on this side. It's only fair, right? So let's swing the spectrum all the way over here, because it's a wide path, right? I'm not going to walk all the way over there, but it's a wide path. Not yet. We're still on the wide one. Let's swing to the other side of this easy, wide path. These hearers, these hearers acknowledge their sin and appear genuine upon hearing the gospel. Maybe they, they bloom quickly, like the, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. But they continue to struggle with sin, and they don't understand the fight. So they give up Monday through Saturday, but then come back on Sunday and repent with great feeling and great emotion. They rightly believe that they can keep messing up again and again because they are saved by grace. But they don't understand their life is to be a living sacrifice offered to God and that they are to become transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So real growth doesn't happen because they continue to forfeit the fight each time they're tested and because obedience is too hard and it feels like legalism. So they've convinced themselves they're okay because of a decision they made once upon a time and because they continue to believe that Jesus is Lord. For them, God's infinite grace becomes an excuse not to grow deep roots and build on a solid foundation. That's the broad path. Remember the original audience here, guys. It wasn't Muslims. It wasn't Buddhists, it wasn't Hindus. It's people who hear and deceive themselves into thinking they're okay. The entire sermon is spoken to a religious people who believe they are righteous already. But unless what? But unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Both the wise and the foolish man heard the same thing. Which is what? We have it in our text here. And everyone who hears what? Hears these words of mine. With these four words, Jesus establishes his authority. And the crowd knows it. Make no mistake, guys. The crowd recognizes this authority. It says so at the ending of this sermon. In verse, uh, I I believe it's 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This crowd knew they were hearing something not just new, but something authoritative. So the real question becomes, what will you do when you're confronted by this authority? Do you love King Jesus? 
If you claim to love him, if you, if you love the message of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, will you then submit to the authority of this King Jesus by obeying him? If so, then your life will look like the narrow path. What does this look like? What does that narrow path look like? In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't say you might keep my commandments. It doesn't say you could, making it optional. It's a guarantee. If you love me, if that love is real, you will keep my commandments. That's about as black and white as it gets. It's not, catch this, it's not, if you keep my commandments, you will love me. You see that subtle shift there? That's actually Islam. That's actually Pharisees. Pick one because they're both wrong. Loving Jesus is a heart transformation that gets expressed through obedience. If that love, if that transformation is real, you will keep his commandments because his desires are becoming your desires. And what is the desire of King Jesus? To glorify the Father. So is your life glorifying the Father? 1 John 2, 3 says, By this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And perfected here means, means qualified, meaning, meaning it's genuine in its completeness. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Love Jesus? Then keep his commandments. Admire him all you want. Study the Bible and memorize it. Attend and even serve in church faithfully. But until your love for Jesus is expressed by and through your obedience to the things he taught, you are not building a living faith. You're building a house that will fall when tested, either by the trials of this life or at the final judgment when all things will be tested. When the Lord says, I never knew you. And this should cause all of us to stop and consider to reflect, to examine. i got to tell you guys, I, I wrestled long and hard with this text this week because it's addressed to me. I'm a hearer, and digging deep into this truth in Scripture forces me to ask, am I a phony? Because I'll be honest, sometimes I feel like one. Maybe you can relate to that. I look at the spectrum of hearers on this wide path, not out of judgment, guys, because I've seen myself on this side over here with the Pharisees, and I've seen myself over here with, with those who have no roots. And I've seen myself kind of weaving in between them sometimes. I've swung back and forth on this wide path, but this text, and this text forces me to self-examine. True righteousness is this little narrow path on that spectrum. It's all hearers, 
but it's this little narrow sliver right here. This, this is where life happens. And this wrestling has, has been uncomfortable for me, and, it, and to be honest, I've been anxious about this message all week. But this wrestling is a good thing because we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to examine. It's forced me to look at my life and what I believe in my heart through the lens of God's word, our only source of hope. When you feel like a phony, where do you turn? Is it to the world or is it to the word? These public Christian figures who have recently renounced their faith went to the world for answers when the storms came, went to what's popular. They went to the shifting sand of our cultural norms. And now their fruit is on full display for what's been in their heart all along. So where do you place your hope? James wrote, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Why? Because the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What is this law of liberty? It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the salvation that comes from knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for us, causing us to fall in love with him, wanting to be like him, wanting to please him, to be filled by him and only him, and to be satisfied by only him. This is our hope. The fool who built his house on the sand was satisfied that his, his choice of construction area was sufficient, that it was good enough. But what a lie this is. It's on this narrow path where we get to love and worship Jesus and serve Jesus and experience his blessing and real life. So what does a true disciple look like? They are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the merciful, the pursuers of righteousness, the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted. These are they who mirror the heart of God as displayed by the fruit of their lives. And these are they who will experience the blessing in their doing as James wrote. So well, what are these blessings? It's actually how Jesus starts the sermon. Not with a list of rules, not with a litany of commands, but a description of these citizens and their blessings. They're blessed with, with union with God, with comfort, with satisfaction, with mercy, with adoption, an everlasting reward and a home for all eternity. It's the blessings exclusively shared to those who mirror the heart of God. These are they who find and follow this narrow path and are building on it. Now, you might feel anxious when you read, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That should cause you some anxiety. But remember this amazing promise, just a handful of verses before this. Jesus says, ask. Ask. 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For whoever, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him, who turn to him for satisfaction? Our God seeks to satisfy us not withholding or hiding things from us. He is our benevolent father, not some dictator with a list of rules waiting to smite us when we mess up. And this satisfaction, guys, this satisfaction is of the soul kind, the eternal kind, the one that lasts and won't get blown away by the storm. But do you hunger and thirst for this righteousness? Are you seeking him? Or are you going to the world for your answers and your satisfaction? If your search for righteousness is not towards God Almighty, then of course this path will be really hard to find. But for those who are genuine, who seek to build upon the foundation that will last for all of eternity, the one that lasts regardless of trials and persecutions and the ever-present moral shifting sands of our culture, you will be satisfied. It's a promise. And the satisfaction is real and it's genuine and it lasts. And this, this satisfaction is the genuine love and relationship that the gospel is inviting you to. A relationship with your your Savior, with your King, but also your Master, who is going to turn your world upside down, which is what he did here in Matthew. He completely obliterated their constructs of what was righteousness, and he put them back on that narrow path. This is what it looks like. Not all this. That love, that genuine relationship, liberates us from the lies of having to earn God's favor over here. But it also liberates us from the lie that this faith is kind of cheap and I, I don't really have any part in it. Or the sin in my life is too much for me to conquer. So I'll just keep messing up because I'm saved by grace. Both of those are shackles. Both of those are deceptions and lies. This satisfaction becomes our sustaining hope. The wellspring of our joy, even in the doing, even in the obeying, this is what it means to be, a, to be a growing, maturing believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't be deceived. Since you're in this room with me right now, you too are being prompted by the Holy Spirit to consider, to reflect to examine the fruit of your heart and the fruit of your life. And we are supposed to do this regularly, especially when we do communion. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we ought to examine ourselves before we participate in this fellowship, this communion with God and our brothers. Perhaps you feel as though you've been straying off that narrow path. It's not too late. Our Lord, who is rich in mercy, is tugging at your heart right now, directing you back to this path. And he's asking you to obey, to submit. That's what salvation is, guys. It's submitting our wants, our wills, our plans, our desires over to the creator and master, trusting that his way is better than our way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father. No one can please the Father except through him. So we're going to take a moment now to reflect before we take this communion. Because we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to wrestle. We're supposed to not be deceived and this, this is a gut check, but there's also this hope and this certainty that if you truly desire God, if you truly desire a relationship with him and you are seeking him, he's not going to deny you. He's going to open the door. He's going to give. So let's take a moment and reflect. Father, this, this has been tough. But it's been good. Because we want to be a people who are worthy of being your disciples. Who are a worthy temple for you to abide in. Father, I pray that you would test our hearts and that we would be genuine that our love for you, that our love for your commands would be displayed in our hearts, in our desires, in our plans, and in our, our world around us. Father, we thank you for the truth that we cannot earn this relationship, but that it is a free gift from you one that overwhelms us and fills us with joy and, and radically changes us. So, Father, we ask for that radical transformation to be evident and real and displayed. Father, if there are people who are wrestling right now, I pray that you would comfort them with your spirit or convict them by your spirit, but that they would not leave here deceived. Father, we thank you for the power of your word we thank you for the hope of our salvation in your son, Jesus. I pray that you would bless this communion as we remember your sacrifice and this, this all being possible because of your son's obedience on that cross. Help us to go and do likewise. I'm going to invite the men to come forward as we...